and the camera pans around and you see it. It's Tom, look, there's yeah, Tom, you don't there's really Bob, there's Roy, there's Jeff. It's, it's great. It's really nice. I get goosebumps on, you know, Roy sings and I'm standing by him. I get chicken skin, you know. There's not many bands that can get that, you know. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hey, this is a rock and roll museum. You guys don't belong in here. <laughs> They ranted, they fainted, they eyes were glassy, some pulled their hair out, some tore their dresses, they threw notes of a very uh, undesirable nature on the stage. I'll tell you all about it. Welcome to Long Play. A podcast where nerds rock out with their Spock out. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Long Play. I'm Paul Spataro, and I've been wanting to do this album for a long time. And I went over to my friend Mike Bailey and asked him, Mike, will you do this with me? And you know what? He said yes. Hey, Mike. Yes, I did. <laughs> but the one thing he said to me, and maybe it's a little exaggeration, but he says, if we don't invite Rob Kelly to come on with us, he's going to shoot us. What? <laughs> I, and, 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 you know, having gotten to know Rob a little bit, I don't think he'd shoot us, but he might talk talk about MASH until we cry. <laughs> And he agreed I've, to be on, too. Hey, Rob. Hello. Yes, Mike. Thank good. Thank God that those checks I send you every month have been paying <laughs> off. I appreciate it. Well, I got to send you checks. I think we should just agree to just that we paid each other and, and just get over it, because it seems like a, a waste of... Uh, a waste of checks and uh, stamps and such. It, it does seem silly to send checks and they just cross each other on their way from Georgia to New Jersey. You just keep the money both. Yeah, it seems, it seems like it's kind of a dumb system. We probably need to review it after we're done recording this episode. Perhaps well, you just both send them here. Well, well, here's the thing. Shag came up with a system and he's from Florida, so they're pretty much used to things screwing up all the time. <laughs> so did, did I even mention the album that we're going to cover? I don't think so. I don't think I did either. We're going to cover what I consider to be one of the best albums of all time, Traveling Wilburys Volume 1. Yay! Yes! <laughs> and uh, I'm just guessing from the reaction I got from you two when we, when we first started discussing this, that you agree with my assessment of this particular, uh, this particular LP. Well, it, it... Go ahead, Rob. I'm sorry. No, no, you go ahead, please. Uh, you know, I was... Until I was introduced to this album, I was unfamiliar with the concept of a supergroup. Uh, and since everything in my head goes back to comic books, uh, it struck me even at a young age that I was witnessing like the Justice League <laughs> of, of, of 60s and 70s rock stars getting together. Uh, and, and, and something I didn't appreciate at the, at the time 
but that I appreciate now uh, is just how amazing it is that you have so many talented individuals coming together and it works. It all seamlessly blends together. Everybody's got their own style, but I, there's no jarring uh, jolts of atmosphere on this album at all. Not, not only did it work, but it worked incredibly easily for them because they recorded this album, they conceived of it and recorded it in a 10-day period. Right. Which is just amazing. But it shows you the level of talent that we're dealing with with this this particular group of, of people. Uh, Rob, you didn't get a chance to, to give your thoughts, and I know you had started to. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, this... I mean, I am now, like... The, just the most massive Bob Dylan fan and I like am completely sort of like unwilling to hear any arguments from anybody else that he's not the greatest thing since sliced bread and whatever and I just keep that to myself most of the time because then I'll just be I'll just come across like a big dick about it so uh, <laughs> but uh, it's actually through the Wilburys that I quote unquote discovered him which sounds absurd but you know when I was in my late teens uh, you know I was certainly aware of Bob Dylan because he's so prevalent in the culture so but i just didn't have any real appreciation i knew some of the song and knew you know, times are changed and stuff but then it was at the joe kubert school that one of my roommates uh had the Woolberries album on cassette uh <laughs> kids uh and uh and for anybody who doesn't know that's a tape that's a tape yes it's it's a, it's a magnetic tape that you put on little spools and it would play them. and uh he played the Wolverines album like in our room and I was like, wow, this is really good. I really like this album. And I sort of noticed that of the songs on the album, the ones I liked the most were the Dylan ones, especially the Dylan solo ones. And that led me like on my first summer back from Hubert, I was like, you know what? Let me buy a Bob Dylan album and see if I like it. And I bought one and boom, I was off to the races and you know, within six months i owned every dylan album all 40 of them or whatever and just became i just started on this obsessive ride so if it wasn't for the Wolverines, i don't think i would have really ever had a chance to discover bob at all so and on top of it the, the album itself is just really great so it's from, to me it's like a, win-win uh, from a solo perspective what are your favorite dylan songs I, oh boy you know uh, i don't think we <laughs> have that kind of time of mass rob yeah i mean yeah exactly i mean i you know they, it changes over time i mean i you know like tangled up in blue is certainly one of my favorites and then there are some more obscure ones of his that again i don't want to bore everybody with but yeah, I, I always got a, I got a kick out of the just the long storytelling ones which we're going to probably talk about a little of that when we get to uh tweeter and the monkey man but uh like hurricane is one of my favorites yeah i mean it's just i i can't even really fully explain why it, 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 that stuff uh, hits me uh, so hard uh, but it does and it did and uh, it's you know like it's just that that guy is the soundtrack to my life and I will follow him until he kills over and at the rate he's going I will kill over before he does <laughs> so uh, but yeah and and it's and considering how quote-unquote serious he is and that's his, certainly his reputation the Woolberries is so fun to listen to because it's him being a goof you know, and it's just like that's a side of him that you don't really get to see because, you know, you think of this guy and you think of him as, you know, the blown in the wind guy, the time they're changing guy, the Lake Rolling Stone guy. And here he is being a goof. You know, he's, he's either singing a song like Prince on Dirty World or he's spoofing Bruce Springsteen or he's taking on a false identity. It's just like it's a side of him that most people would not, never get to see. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And uh, 
for what it's worth, this this album came out in 1988. So at that point, I was in my 20s, unlike you two. Uh, and uh, I was a huge Beatle fan since my mid-teens. And I knew, you know, I knew uh, basically, you know, the the, the more well-known Dylan stuff. Uh, I was pretty well-versed with Tom Petty. I knew ELO. And uh, I, did, I wasn't that familiar with Roy Orbison, but I made a point of becoming a lot more familiar with him after this album came out. But, uh, well, this this really rejuvenated his career. I mean, he really oh, yeah, got definitely. put back in the spotlight because of the album. Yeah, but the combination of this and uh, Mystery Girl, which came out shortly afterwards, which had a lot of collaboration from fellow Wilburys on that, uh, really, yeah, that did. And then they had the Black and White Night concert. Uh, right. You know, he, his, his career really did come rushing back, and then sadly he passed away shortly after that of a heart attack. And, uh, you know, that, that was really very sad because... Uh, you know, as much as we're going to praise this album, and as much as I still like the follow-up effort, it really did suffer from the lack of Roy Orbison. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that entirely. Yeah, I was uh, I was twelve when this album came out. Shut up! No, no, the, the, the reason I wasn't saying that to say you're old. I mean, you are, but that's entirely <laughs> that's just that's just a byproduct in the <laughs> Um. I had not fully formed, you know, what kind of music I was going to listen to yet. I, I was the youngest of four, so I had three older sisters, all of who had different musical tastes. My eldest sister was into, you know, during the 80s, all the popular stuff, Duran Duran, Michael Jackson, anything that was playing on MTV. And my sister Ginny had gotten into simultaneously The Doors and Alabama. Don't ask how that <laughs> happened, it just did. Uh, but my parents, you know, music was not like, it's not like we all sat down and listened to albums together, but we took a lot of road trips. So we listened to a lot of music and certain albums just started getting played over and over again. One of them would be uh, Paul Simon's Graceland. That was constantly in rotation. And I found out because of this album and because of the Traveling Wilburys, my mother lit up when she found out this was happening. Because she loved Bob Dylan. She loved Tom Petty. Uh, my dad, turns out, loved Roy Orbison. Uh, or as Christopher McDonald said in uh, Grease 2, the Roy Orbisones. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and because of that, it was almost like I had so many ins to liking this album that I almost it was almost impossible for me not to. But we played it so much that it just became... One of the, I mean, when I was driving around today, I was singing along and I with the music, and I haven't heard this album in at least ten years. Wow! But still, all of, like you know, especially the the Roy Orbison solo song is just stuck in my head because it's that good. And you know, I I am not I'm not a big music guy. I mean, I love music, uh, but you know, I it, unlike Rob, I didn't like find somebody in this group and follow them. Uh, you know, I, you know, I'm familiar with the Beatles because, God, how can you not be familiar with the Beatles? Because I mean, you're, you're a sentient human being. <laughs> uh, but, and, and, you know, Bob Dylan, you know, I, I had friends who went through a folk phase during my senior year, so I heard a lot of that. And Tom Petty was kind of u- ubiquitous in the late 80s and early 90s. 
uh, with, between Free Fallen and all the other singles. Uh, you know, which, which was also another one that's kind of an offshoot of this album because it's another one that was produced by Jeff Lynne with mm-hmm. some backing vocals from fellow Wilburys. Right. So, so and and with Roy Orbison, it's really it's really funny because I will always associate him also with this movie. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it called Hiding Out. That had John, oh, John Cryer. 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 I, I remember. Yeah, he's he's like a stockbroker or something, and he pretends to be a young kid in a high school. Falls in love with Annabeth Gish because, good lord, it's Annabeth Gish. How could you not fall in love with her? Uh, but you know, uh, you're not alone anymore. Um, not, not you're not alone anymore. One of his big hits was like a huge part of that movie. So, you know, it, it was like all these things kind of coming together to, to, to make this one of the most memorable albums of my life. And of course, Sean Cryer was in Superman 4, so it always comes back to Superman. <laughs> and Annabeth Gish was in Steel. Was in Steel. I didn't want to bring that up. She's, <laughs> she's probably still very sensitive about that. I don't she know suffered enough. We should yeah, I it. saw no need to be smircher, Mike, but all right, you go right ahead. It was a terrible movie. Yeah, I'm just. Uh, I just punched up the hiding out uh, soundtrack and uh, the song "Crying." I was all right for a while. I could smile for a while. But I saw you last night. You held my hand. Yeah, crying. There you go. Yep. Which, which, not so much in its sound but kind of in the tone of the song is not dissimilar from not alone anymore mm-hmm. yeah I'd agree. so i could understand where you'd make that connection just from kind of the 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 vibe it's supposed to be creating in you so this this album was actually kind of put together on a lark uh harrison wanted to do a b-side for uh i can't remember which song i think it's is this love was the song that he needed to do a b-side for and he got together with the the crew for kind of on a lark, and they created the first song, which is "Handle Handle with Care." Being beat up and battered around, being sent up and I've been shot down. You're the best thing that I've ever found. Reputations changeable, situations tolerable. But baby, you're adorable. Handle me with care. So, basically, handle with care was created again on a, on a short uh, on, a, on a short leash, and apparently they were in Dylan's garage, and there was a mm-hmm. box that said handle with care on it and that's what gave Harrison the entire idea for this song and he put it together and if you look at the the lyrics he's really you know you you think it's kind of got that dual feeling about it you you think it's a guy talking about a new love and that he needs to be handled with care but I really think he's singing about this box (laughs) I don't think it's nearly as deep as as your first impression is but uh, ultimately it was deemed to be just far too good to be the b-side of a single and that's what gave them the drive to go forward with it. Yeah, I mean, ima- imagine having the ability to go to your record company and saying, oh, yeah, I tossed this song off. Oh, and by the way, Roy Orbison, Jeff Lynne, Tom Petty, and Bob Dylan are playing on it. Here you go. 
<laughs> Jeez. <laughs> it's. No, I mean, it comes. It's kind you of don't a, turn away at all. I'm sorry, Mike. What? I said that's not something you turn away in any at all. So. And, and just overall, I mean, it's got like a folk rock so- sound to it, so I guess that kind of appeals to the, the Dylan set. And then uh, I, I think in particular the, the Roy Orbison bridge in it is really what just kind of takes it from being an average song and pushes it over the top. I, I think it's got that nice combo of the very smooth production, which is with Jeff Lynne's staple. But then it's got that kind of grit that, that Dylan brings to it. And I think that's what made it so interesting is that it has that bit of attention. George Harrison's voice was very beautiful, very smooth. And then on you on the on the chorus, you've got Petty and Dylan kind of sandpapering it up. And I think it's and you know, you said then you've got Harrison and you've got, as you mentioned, you've got Orbison doing the bridge, which is really beautiful. And then you have the harmonica at the end with Dylan just sawing away for like his life depended on it. And. I think it's that it's, it's that duality that made it it just jumps out of you because it just doesn't sound like anything you've heard it, it sounds a bit like a Jeff Lynne George Harrison record but it's got this other thing to it that you don't hear I think that's what makes it so so powerful and this was uh, the first single from the album it was also the first video because you know this came out in an era where if you put out a single you needed to have a video for it yeah no doubt you know, it's it's kind of funny that, you know, it, you were talking about kind of the duality of the song about being a guy who's law, you know, like pleading to, for his new love to, you know, go easy on him. Uh, and it's about this box. I kind of took it that it's them talking to their, uh, you know, a new record label or whatever. <laughs> you know, That's been, interesting. Been in airports, terrorized, been to meetings, hypnotized, overexposed, commercialized. And yeah, I always thought that too, Mike. So, I mean, I'm I'm not saying, you know, that that anybody's right or wrong here, but it's just I I kind of even as a kid, as a 12-year-old, and I was a moron. So, you know, I was oblivious. If it wasn't like stapled to my forehead, I wasn't getting it. But uh for whatever reason that always kind of stuck with me. And another thing I love about this song is it feels like a smoothly produced jam session. Because mm-hmm. you had all the separate pieces to it, and like you said, it all comes together, but it still stands on its own. It's it's such an amazing song because of that, and only people as talented as Jeff Lynne and George Harrison and you know these people who have you know been doing it for so long could pull that off. I don't think you could get you know people like groups from the '90s together to do something like this and it sound as good and that's not saying bad things about music from the 90s i'm just saying there's something about this generation of musicians where they could make it work and and an interesting aspect of it to me and it's just you know and again i i am not a musician by any stretch i just know what i like uh jeff lynn as a producer i love elo stuff but he did have a tendency to overproduce and it felt like this is the album where it felt like he kind of pulled back on the throttle a little bit and said, you know what, or eased off the throttle rather, and said, let me let me let the music talk for itself a little bit and not produce it quite so much. I'll, I'll do what I can to, to smooth it out, but I'm not going to make it overly, you know, computerized. 
If yeah, I don't. I, no, I think the songs have more of an individual flavor, uh, certainly much more than on the second album, which is what I think happens there. Is on the second album, they, the songs tend to sound a little same samey from song to song to song. And that's not the case on this album. Each all, all these songs have a very distinctive sound, as we'll get to over the very next song. Uh, and, and part of the other thing I love about this song is this. I can't the video. It's just these five guys in a room together. You've never seen that. I mean, it's just like yeah. unbelievable uh, that it's these these titanic figures all in a room together playing and just goofing around. It's just unbelievable. Now, I, in the video, do we all know who the guy is in the background? Who's the roadie who's carrying stuff around? I don't recall. There's a guy in the background. You never see his face, but you see a guy carrying boxes and lifting things. He's in the background. That is Michael Palin from Monty Python. Okay. Now, I <laughs> think Michael Palin wrote the liner notes for this album as well. Right, right. That's well, he was episode. he and George Harrison had a relationship from way back because he produced right. uh, uh, you know, some Monty Python things, Time Bandits. I think George Harrison actually produced The Ruddles. Yeah, he's in it. And George Harrison helped produce Life of Brian as well. So Yeah, that, that's interesting. I didn't realize that was him in there. Now I'm gonna, yeah. next time I see it, I'm going to have to look more closely. Next time I'm watching I mean, MTV and they start showing videos again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Now, one of the things that I like about this song and I like about all the songs, so it's kind of a more of a general note, is that in listening to the album today, it struck me that this was a bunch of guys getting together and talking about the various stages of relationships they're in. <laughs> You know, it's just like, you know, there's some women done me wrong. There's I've done some women wrong. There's, you know, <laughs> I, I'm new to, the, you know, I'm I'm in a new relationship. And I I kind of like that because it feels what this album feels more than anything. And, and this song is a good example of that is it's kind of working class. Like like these aren't, you know, rock stars that are demanding that they only have blue. M I mean, they could be, but it doesn't come off that way. But, you know, they're they're not demanding that only blue M&Ms are in their, you know, their dressing room or whatever. You know, I, I think one of the thing about the traveling Wilburys is that everybody kind of checked their egos at the door. And that gave this song and the album, in, you know, in general, this, you know, kind of like anybody can anybody's welcome here. You know, you, you know, you're going to find something here that you relate to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, totally. Yeah, with the ego thing, I mean, that, that has to play into the fact that these five guys are not actually credited on this album. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're pseudonyms, which gives it an even extra level of like, yeah, I, you know, we're not going to put these legendary names on it. We're going to use these fake names. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's the whole thing is just sort of a very low-key goof, which makes it very charming. I've, I've always said in, in my entertainment, I always find it much more engaging if it feels like the people who are entertaining you are having fun doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I could point to any album ever in the history of albums where I think five guys had more fun doing it than this album. Yeah, yeah. And and it comes it play, it comes right through in the music. Even the most I mean some of the subject matters in some of these songs they do get a little depressing. And yet the album is never depressing. Yep. It, it, it's, you know, depressing, depressing topics, but one of the most upbeat albums ever. <laughs> we might, might as well move on to the uh, song number two, which is Dirty World.
I find to be a tremendous contrast in just the music and the tone, all about it, you know, everything about it seems to contrast handle with care, and yet it goes very smoothly from one to the other. The contrast is really probably planned out. It's probably, you know, well thought out and that they chose to make this the second song on the album. Uh, I never knew quite what to make of exactly what he's talking about. Is he talking about the porn industry? <laughs> is he talking about a girl that he's just interested in and, you know, is being used by people? What exactly is he getting to in this song? Well, I would suggest with any Bob Dylan song, you've got a 50-50 shot that it's about a woman. That's a good Oh, no, I, I think there's no bet. question about that. It's a safe bet. I mean, you know, that's a free bingo space there in the, the Dylan game. Uh, and it could be about a million other things. And then certainly at the end, when all the other Wilburys sing their little parts, it's clear they are just reading things off of pieces of paper yeah, that they, they wrote down. It's they just would, random they would all stuff. Ask, all asked to give random comments at the end. Yeah. Five-speed five speed gearbox and, uh, you know... Big refrigerator is always... Yeah, big refrigerator, yeah. I mean, they're just completely... Yeah, well, we have... Uh, I, you know what? I don't even remember the words in there. Electric dumplings? <laughs> I, I don't even know. It's even electric know dumplings, because I, I have the lyrics in front of me. Electric dumplings, red bell peppers, fuel injection, service charge, five-speed gearbox, long endurance, quest for junk food, big refrigerator, trembling Wilbury... Yep. Marble earrings, porky curtains, power steering, bottled water, and parts and services. Yeah, it's just goofiness. It's just, as I said, it's, it's on, on Dylan's albums, he's so serious, or it seems like he is a lot of times. So when he's just being goofy and playful, I find it to be very charming. And apparently the, the, the beginning of this, like the, the instigation for the song was to make it sound like Prince. And because in the song, uh, Prince's song, um, there's some song of his, I forget which one, but it starts with him about singing about love your sexy body. And that's the first line of this song. And so it's literally just Bob channeling Prince into this Wilbury song. So it's just, you know, again, who knows where the inspiration strikes. But this was really the song, this one and, and the one we'll get to later on. As I said, those are the ones that really jumped out at me. And I was like, huh, this is really interesting. So that's it's. it's I, I, I will like forever love these songs for that for, for doing that for me. I, I just get the the sense that this is about he has met this girl and she is dirty and it's and he's loving it and I just one of one of my favorite parts of the song is uh, introduce you to the other members of my gang and it's just <laughs> you know it, the group he's hanging out with this that made perfect sense to me you know. These are my but, CD friends. <laughs> well, and as he gives that line, there's a little, there's some some backing vocals in there too, a little backing harmony. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly where that's intended to go. 
I, I just this was one of my dad's favorite songs on the album, and I could never understand as a kid why, but now I think I kind of understand, you know, why he thought it was funny. Uh, just just the the tone of it, it's just it's so bouncy. I mean, and and I don't equate bouncy with Bob Dylan. I really no, don't. No, I mean, you it's don't. just. You know, I, I my experiences with Dylan are very limited. You know, it's basically if there's a greatest hits album out there, that's probably what I've heard. But uh, I, I feel comfortable in saying that, you know, if he's channeling Prince, well, he's doing Prince better than Prince. <laughs> then again, I don't like Prince. So there you go. I mean, I had to endure Bat Dance at age 13. <laughs> and, and I think that was uh, I'm still in therapy. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm with you on that. I mean, never, never was much of a Prince appreciator personally. You know, uh, you know, like uh, I had a, I worked with a guy that was a fan of Prince. That's all he listened to, and he said if he doesn't, if the song doesn't begin with ah, he doesn't want to listen to it. And that's, <laughs> that, that's pretty much my indication of the song I don't want to listen to. So, but no, it's just the, the whole thing at the end just makes the song perfect. Like it, it was, it was good, and then everybody just throwing out random stuff at the end just, just makes it perfect for this group, for this album, and just, I just, I, I have a big old smile on my face right now thinking about it, and I have that same smile on my face when I hear it. There's a piece of video of the five of them recording it together, and they all have like notebook paper in front of them, <laughs> and they're all reading off of it and leaning into the mic and singing these words. So it's just like, it really was thrown together. And another thing about the, the singing is that uh, since again, I'm the, the, the sort of resident Dylanologist here, the albums that he had done leading up to this, his singing, I mean, I'm not going to get into defending his singing because I love his singing and there's all the reasons why I love his singing or whatever, but definitely in the mid to late eighties, he had really started kind of whining more in his singing it caught it kind of got more pinched and just more like that and it sort of <laughs> they did i think that's really the pre, like people when they imitate him that's the noise they make now, i have and no one on this with me is this around the time of slow train coming or is that is, is there a... that was 1979 so this okay is, so there's a gap a, of about eight yeah years 10 years yeah and but then when I, he... I had that and i had live at the budokan which I think okay. is around the same time also. Yes, that's right. That's right. But I mean, the albums he did bef just before this are the three worst albums of his career. And to me, they are the worst song of his albums. And it's still in this album, he's much more relaxed. He sounds much more expansive and warm. And I have to think that's because he was with his friends. I think he, I th and then we'll get into this probably at the end when we sum up, but it's like, I think something, him doing this broke something through for him and, and helped him find his way out of that ditch that he had sort of found himself in where he was really kind of, again, just sort of doing like very pinched vocals. And here he sounds just very warm and friendly and never more so on than on, than on this song. You know, I've never understood people criticizing the way Dylan sang. He sang the way he sang. You don't ask an artist who develops a style, like, why don't you do this other style? If he did another style, it wouldn't be Bob Dylan. I, I just, I, I don't get that. It just pisses I, me off. I guess the theory is, and I don't agree with this, so don't take it as me arguing in favor of it, but I guess the theory is he doesn't have a pretty voice. No, which, not Which at all. he doesn't. But that they think that since he is such a genius of a writer, 
he probably should have been writing songs and handing them off to other people to sing, which I don't agree with. Nope. But I think that is the theory that people have. Well, there's, I mean, there's pretty singing and there's good singing and pretty, pretty singing can be good singing and vice versa, but pretty singing is hitting all the notes flawlessly. And I, there are singers I know that do that and they don't stir anything in me at all. I'm able to appreciate it on, well, wow, they hit the notes certainly well, but big deal. And then there's to me, good singing where it stirs something in you. It, it makes you feel something. And that has completely nothing to, that has nothing to do with the prettiness of it, it, it whether, it, you know, I mean, Tom Waits in many ways has like a worse voice than Bob Dylan. Uh, and yet Tom Waits, I've heard many Tom Waits songs that make me feel something very profound. And so therefore he's a good singer. If it makes you feel something, that's good singing and that's it. And you can't argue it. You can't say, well, it's good or it's bad. Whether it Now there are, you know, tons of people that hear Bob sing and just, just they can't get past it. And so they don't feel anything when they hear it because to them it just sounds like somebody being fed into a wood chipper or whatever. But <laughs> but that's not that's not what happens with me. It didn't take me long to to go. You know, there's something in the quality, the timber of his voice. And not to get too far afield here, but um, I re- many years ago I saw Paul Simon being interviewed, and he was talking about artists that he appreciated, and he said that in to his mind. Bob Dylan is one of the great singers of all time because he said he felt Dylan could make you feel multiple emotions with just one line because there was something about the timbre of his voice. And he said to him, that's extraordinary singing. And so I've always sort of felt that way. And I've heard lots of covers of Dylan songs, and there's only a handful that I say are better than the ones that, that Bob himself has done. So I'm, I'm picturing in my mind like taking two, two songs that come to mind for me are uh, Like a Rolling Stone or Positively 4th Street, which are mm-hmm. kind of angry songs a little bit. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> uh, particularly Positively 4th Street. But uh, like, put a pretty singer on it. Get Karen Carpenter to sing them if she w- were still alive. And they would suck. <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard a version of Like a Rolling Stone that's in the same... I, I, I don't even know where you... Not even universe. I, you'd, you'd need the anti-monitor to collapse these things to be able to get anywhere <laughs> close. Thank you. That was for you, Mike. Uh, you, you, you know... I have never heard a version of like a, like a Rolling Stone that to me was anywhere near what Dylan did. Not even it's you can't even compare them. So you know, yeah, it's something about the it's just something about the timber of his voice that just does it. And and here, like I said, he's having fun and he's goofy and he's relaxed and he's a bit dirty. You know, he he sounds a little seedy. He sounds a little uh, salacious, which fits with the song. This is Bob after a fifth and he's hanging at the strip club. I mean, yes. Yeah. Oh, I think there's a lot of That's a lot of that has gone on. So I get the feeling that's what that, and I don't know about you, but if you listen to the very end, right at the, at the last line of the song where George Harrison sings dirty world, dirty world, it sounds like he says effing dirty world, but they've muted it. Yeah, I, th- I think it just, I think it, as it plays, I think he did say that, and I think they took the beginning of it out, and it just comes off as, ing dirty world. Yes, exactly, exactly. You kind of hear just, just, just that brief little pause, and I have to think that that's, they did that, you know, that's what that is. In fact, I, I told you, I, I have the lyrics in front of me to the, the album, and that's exactly what they have listed. They have dirty world, a dirty world, it's a dot, 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 I-N-G. Oh, do they really? Oh, okay. <laughs> Those sneaky Wilburys. But okay, <laughs> moving on to song number three, which is 
a song I still really, really like, and it might be my least favorite on the album, and I still like it a lot, is Rattled. got a, a rockabilly feel to it it's it's jeff lynn kind of to me it's him throwing off the elo over production and just coming out and just playing the guitar with a 60s kind of beat to it and having some fun again but it's another song i'm sorry another song that like almost every other song on this album is showing a vulnerability of the singer in the lyrics that are being sang and I, I think that's one of the things that makes this album fun is, is that vulnerability that they show in every song. You know, this is kind of almost the inverse of Dirty World because one of the things I like about Dirty World is, is the quality of Dylan's singing here. I love the fact that it's so clear. Like, it, it just just it fits what, what, this, uh, what the feeling of the song is. And it does have that kind of 60s. I mean, he says baby more times, uh, you know, <laughs> in the uh, chorus of this than I think in any other song ever produced ever. Um, <laughs> since Be My Baby. Since Be My Baby. And, and and even then, he's like, you know, giving him a run for his money. But it's just, it, it's one of those songs where it, it, you're right, it kind of shows a vulnerability, but it's also the kind of song that a guy would sing because he's trying to impress a girl. Uh, almost. Uh, you know, especially with a guitar solo. And it's got a great guitar solo right in the middle of it. I, I it's one of my favorite parts of the song. This isn't my favorite song on the album, but that's like saying I don't have a song I dislike. So I say, saying saying it's my least favorite is is like saying okay, I only like this one a real real lot. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yep, yep, yep. Because I, I I don't I don't mean to put it down in the slights by saying that. I, I would never. This song comes on the radio. I'm never changing the station. Never. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah. It's just the other songs are at such a high level for me that this, if I'm ranking them, this comes in last. What else? Did I, oh, the, the other thing about this song, and I remember hearing the story at the time, was this is one of the few songs, or one, I think the only song that actually features the uh, Roy Orbison growl. Right. Yeah. And, and the, the talk after the album came out was they wanted him to do it all the time. But he said, you know, if I do it all the time, it's not special. So he limited <laughs> it to the one song. I can't make that sound to save my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at that. Pretty good. Yeah, well, I, I have mediocre talents, and that is one of them. You could have been a Wilbury with that. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the uh, compliment there. Thank I'm thinking you. Jebediah Wilbury. Jebediah. <laughs> Cal L. Wilbury. Cal L. 
<laughs> Every once in a while, you got to mention a comic book thing to keep me interested. I there you go. Come on, Mike. Come I, on. Come on. <laughs> Did you have any thoughts on it, Rob? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, this is it. it it's a very I, yeah. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It probably is probably my least favorite as well. But it's not because it's a bad song. It's just it's it's very it it's very charming in that you feel like this is what you get when somebody of enormous talent or a couple guys of enormous talent just bang out a song. It just has that kind of effortless kind of, yeah, it's a wonderfully entertaining little rock song, you know, and it's like, it's like three minutes and change. They all basically all of them get out of town before the shooting starts as it were. And it just has that, that feel to it. It's just very fun and effortless. And it feels very much like Petty and Lynn just goofing around with one another. I think you could have put this on um, full moon fever uh, and it probably would have fit in fairly well. It kind of has that that feel to it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think it's it's definitely got the same type of feel to it as that album. Uh, but that said, moving on to our next tune, which would be Last Night. song first came out or when the album first came out initially this was the one i latched onto this was the first song that that was like my favorite on the album for a while it's kind of got a a, a reggae beat to it going uh it's another story song it's a tom petty tune uh although they 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 did not take individual writing credit so i'm there's a little speculation to say it's a tom petty tune but i'm pretty sure it is uh you know Basically talking about a one-night stand, and again, another one where the lyrics are showing some vulnerability. Uh, but just, you know, another one with, with a happy beat to it, and just really fun to listen to. I love the harmonies on this. It, just mm-hmm. so, it was so fun to listen to these guys try and harmonize, because their voices really don't sync up all that well, but they don't care. And I, I think there's something very, very sweet about that. They're just, just banging away at, this, at, the, at the lyrics, you know? I... I... I love that it's a song about a guy that has a one-night stand where he gets mugged at the end of it. <laughs> um, and I love it's that Roy Orbison's the one that sings the Your Money or Your Life song. It just it cha- It's like suddenly somebody else has to take over and tell the story because the original storyteller is just so upset and traumatized <laughs> by this experience. Uh, and, and then it's just like now I'm back at the bar and he's back in the song so I just it, it, it's another bouncy song and, and again I, I hate using that term with the, with the caliber of talent we're talking about but it's just you know like you're, you're, you're bopping along I mean I was listening to it driving down the road today and it's just you know I you know picture there's like a margarita in my hand and you know just having a good time 
if, I, I don't think they ever made a music video for this, but I kind of picture the music video as being, you know, starting at the bar and seeing it through the, the eyes of somebody who isn't the storyteller, just kind of watching mm-hmm. this go on in the background. And uh, again, it, it's just, to me, this was the first one that I latched onto, and it, it was a lot of that bouncy beat to it and everything. And I don't think you're insulting it at all when you when you say that, because I think that's the feel they were going for, and I think that's the feel we got. This is just a fun album. Yeah, the, melodically, this song is irresistible. It's so catchy the minute you hear it. And I love that it's it's self-aware enough to go, all I got was this song. <laughs> like, I, I, I just love that it takes you out of it for like a split second, but you don't care because it's, it's that good. It's just like, like any good storyteller, you know, if at the end they're like, well, you know, I didn't get much out of it, but I got this story. Suddenly everything is worth it. Well, so, hell, that's Taylor Swift's built a career on that MO. So, you know, it well, obviously works. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you got bad blood. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not going to get that out of my head now. <laughs> not gonna I, don't, I don't mean that as an insult. I'm just saying I bet if you're a professional songwriter and you have experiences like that, you can't help but think, I could turn this into a song and make a little bit of money out of this. You know, I mean, I can't. Well, I mean, Piano man. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I just I'm going to totally take us off topic here, and because I know you guys are such big sports fans. <laughs> I went to the Mets playoff game the other night, and they they're making a point now. Uh, you know, they they always try to find their little niche with the crowd, and in between innings, at the eighth inning, they play Piano Man now and try and get the whole crowd to sing. Isn't that the national anthem up there? Isn't all any Billy Joel song like the national anthem? Up well, there? He, he is a Long Island boy, so he's popular yeah, up yeah, here. Yeah, he's, he's he's the the house act for Madison Square Garden. There you go. He plays there once a month. Come hello, high water. Wow. To turn it around on you, Rob, weren't they at one point trying to make "Born to Run" the national anthem of New Jersey? So yes, yes, <laughs> and then they realized it's a song about getting the hell out of where you are, and I think they smartened up. <laughs> you guys ever see the Robert Wool bit on that? Uh, no. He did a stand-up special on HBO, and he goes through the entire song, and he's just like, "What? What anthem has suicide in it?" <laughs> Believe me, that fits. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and now, once again, after. A couple of songs that kind of had not not a similar melody to them, but a similar feel. You kind of had a bunch of fun songs, and then we went, you know, we or two fun songs kind of in a row, and then we went to a very serious song with "Not Alone Anymore."
which is, uh, to my understanding, written by Jeff Lynn. But Jeff was smart enough to have Roy Orbison do the lead vocals on it, and he really, really did well on this one. It's kind of he almost gave it like an operatic tone in the way he sings this thing, and I, to me, it's very, very reminiscent of Crying, which we talked about earlier. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, the vocals beautiful. It just is. Uh, I, I, I was, you know, every time I hear this song, it makes me tear up a little bit because this. Whoever this person is, they're really feeling whatever they're feeling, you know? And Roy Orbison, you know, just gives it, especially that ending part where he just, you know, he keeps going up a key and up a key and up a key. And it's just, it's almost Broadway in, yeah. in a way, uh, and, you know, because, you know, I, I tend to sing along with things. And this one was a challenge. Uh, <laughs> well, you, the, you probably have to start it in a much lower register than Roy does. Well, no, but still, it's still a challenge. I'm a tenor, so <laughs> that's just how it is. Uh, you know, people give me crap about singing all the time on shows, so I, I guess that's why I'm a little sheepish about talking about it. But no, it's well, this uh, is the show to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. But no, it's it's just you know he keeps repeating the you're not alone anymore and it just keeps every time you know and sometimes when, when a song gets repetitive like that it can get kind of annoying but in this case it just keeps driving home the point of the song and if anybody else in the group had done it it would have been good but Roy Orbison made it special and uh, I think you're absolutely right turning it over to him because it sounds like his song anyways uh, just was probably a master stroke and again checked his ego at the door and said no this guy's got the better chops for this yeah and 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 just talking about you know we've talked about the repetitive uh, theme of vulnerability in this and this is one where he's saying I screwed up I mm -hmm. messed up this relationship I mean the, the lyrics are I let you down I let you go I lost you how was I to know I, it hurts like never before you're not alone anymore you know, every heartache, every pain, it hurts like never before. I mean, it's just showing a serious vulnerability and sensitivity that you don't expect from a supergroup. It, it, it's it's a classier Smoky Mountain Rain from Ronnie Millsap. Okay, I, I'll just accept that as fact because I don't <laughs> know. Yeah, me too. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> I, I, I thought I was pitching love, love, and apparently I didn't, so I apologize. One of the things that I, I like about this, again, the whole album, is the, is the backstory that you know that this was recorded mostly, as far as I understand, in at Dylan's house because he has a recording studio in his house. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with, with what he's got over there, but he has a huge house in Malibu. And apparently it's got all these weird domes and like a thousand rooms and it's just this crazy thing. And the fact that pretty much, except for Handle With Care, you don't really hear all five Wilburys at any given point on any of these songs. You hear like two or three of them at a clip. You get the sense that some of them had wandered out of the recording studio while the others were working. And so it's mm -hmm. like, I hear that, you know, I hear this one not alone anymore, which is clearly a Jeff Lynn or Orbison song, maybe some Harrison on there. You get the sense Bob's in the kitchen making a sandwich. <laughs> and, the, you know, and then they did this one and then they came back the next day and Bob was like, Bob was in the recording studio. And meanwhile, Jeff Lynn was off. Dude, you know what I mean? It has that kind of 
you can almost hear them wandering in and out of the recording studio and they're like, oh, we got another song done. Fantastic. Let's move on tomorrow. It, it has that it, to me. It has that that I keep using the word charm, but I can't help it because I I'm, I'm not very well spoken. Uh, it's it's just it just has that. I can't get that out of my mind, that idea of these five guys. And they're just probably sitting around the kitchen table, you know, <laughs> banging stuff out. And maybe that's because there's a picture in the volume three, the second album of them literally sitting at a kitchen table with their guitars. So I, I, I kind of get that feeling. You keep using the word charm, but I think it's absolutely correct. And I think mm-hmm. in our own ways, we're both saying the same thing kind of over and over again. And I talk about them having fun, and that's the charm of it. Yeah, you know, I think yeah. I think we're saying the same thing, but that's the feeling through this entire album. So it, it doesn't seem to me to be wrong to use it repetitively on different songs because just about every one of them has that feel to it. Yeah, yeah. I want I want the the picture of George Harrison watching the monkeys. I just I just think that would be great. <laughs> okay, so moving on from Not Alone Anymore, we get to probably the most bitter song of the album. Oh God! <laughs> Congratulations, which is just a mixture of bitterness, regret, and sarcasm at its highest level. mentioned earlier positively fourth street that's what this reminds me of yeah when when you when you draw bob dylan's ire that is not good that is not a good thing because he is just going to spit it out of you in a song yeah it's again it's a such a huge tonal change i mean it's the same basic theme with heartache but the the approach is just so completely different than the roy orbison song that it's just it's you know you're like whoa okay now we're in Somebody's had a few too many, and he's really angry. <laughs> we, we went from, boy, I screwed it up, and you left, and now I'm all alone, to, fuck you, what the hell did you do to me? <laughs> yeah, this is, this is if, I, I don't know how familiar either of you are with, with, tech, with uh, Blood on the Tracks. Uh, that's my favorite Dylan album. And that song, that album has nothing but, it's all love songs. And one of them, you know, one will be very nice and sweet. And the other one is really hateful and nasty. And that's what this is. There's a song on on Blood on the Tracks called Idiot Wind, which is nine minutes of Bob Dylan just being about as pissed as he ever has been in his life and just yelling at you and and at this woman for for the length of all nine minutes of the song. And Congratulations has that sort of, it's just all of a sudden he's just pissed off. And ironically enough, this is the only Wilbury song Bob Dylan has ever played live. Oh, really? He played, I didn't he, played, know. he played this live. I have a recording of it. It's not particularly, it, the recording is not great because it's a bootleg. <clears throat> but uh, nevertheless, uh, yeah, he, he, he has played this one live. But even with the bitterness and the venom he's singing here, 
again, we get back to the vulnerability when you look at the line or you listen to the line. I guess I must have loved you more than I ever knew. My world is empty now because it don't have you. Mm -hmm. So we're still getting into the vulnerability even with the venom. Yep. Yep. That's at the deepest part of being drunk. <laughs> where, where you're crying, and then you come up, you sober up a little bit, and you're just pissed off again. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm down with that. <laughs> well, you know, I think anybody who's lived life and anybody who's been hurt in a relationship can relate to this song at some point or another. Oh, yeah. So, you know, probably more so than Not Alone Anymore, because Not Alone Anymore. Uh, requires a level of self-introspection that I think a lot of people don't have and a lot of people aren't capable of having. But congratulations saying, hey, everything in my life is screwed up because of you. <laughs> we all have that ability. <laughs> Bob Bob can tap into that shallowness in the human condition. So then, then we, we move from the anger of congratulations to the self-enlightenment of George Harrison, who... who uh, Clearly, you know, had had a level of uh, respect or love for you know the the universe on a whole and and uh, and religion and all of that. And I think Heading for the Light kind of grabs a little of that and just ties in a little bit of ELO type back background vocals throughout it. But there's just this sense that I had listened to it. There's just this sense of sereneness that totally, again, gives us a contrast from the song we just heard. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. This is uh, the, the happiest um, of the songs for, for whatever reason. I mean, I love the lyrics. You know, been close to the edge, hanging by my fingernails. I've rolled and I tumbled through the roses and the thorns, and I couldn't see the sign that warned me I'm heading for the light. I mean, it's just, you know, that's that <laughs> seems simple, but it's not. Uh, and again, it's it's like one of those things, the relatability of it, that you know, we've all been kind of there, you know, uh, jokers and fools on either side. I mean, Rob deals with that on a constant basis on the Fire and Water podcast. So. <laughs> Ooh, burn. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what else to say to that. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's a very beautiful song. Yeah, George Harrison had a sereneness to him, going as far back as you know, "My Sweet Lord," and even even on his stuff on the Beatles. I mean, my favorite Beatles song is one of his songs. And he always had that kind of feeling to him that you just got the sense that he really wasn't. I mean, first of all, probably easy to go through life feeling kind of relaxed when you're a multi-trillionaire, but. <laughs> But nevertheless, you didn't get the sense that that he sort of feared, uh, you know, death 
I guess. I mean, I'm sure he did like any other mortal person, but he just kind of had that seem like he was tapped into a sort of universal consciousness that he was able to sort of summon at will. And he had that beauty in his voice that I think he could convey that. And this song feels a lot of that. And again, what a contrast from going from congratulations <laughs> to this. I mean, this feels like, again, I'm not reading into it, but this feels like uh, angry guy singing congratulations in the bar. He's pissed off. He's on the phone. He's yelling at his woman. You and here's his buddy coming in. It's like 6 a.m. and his buddy's like, "No, man, come on. It's all right. Let's get in the car. Let's get out of here. Let's go. You know, let's go uh, do go see a movie or something." And the 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 the, the, the buddy is the the one who sees things more optimistically, and he's dragging the angry congratulations guy into the <laughs> out of the out of the bar, and it's sunlight and uh, that kind of thing. It, it, it has that feeling. I, I mentioned briefly, and I just wanted to highlight again, because I, I really think in this particular song, because it is almost your prototypical Harrison, uh, you know, my sweet Lord, give me love, that kind of feel to it. But then throwing into it the Jeff Lynn ELO type background vocals, I think kind of makes it, you know, distinguishes it a little bit and gives it a different sense, you know, different, just a different feel about it. And, and it, it, it almost adds to the upbeat nature of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, and uh, I'm, I'm going to just feel remiss if I don't say, Rob, what's your favorite Beatles song? Oh, Here Comes the Sun. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that song. Yeah. yeah. All right. And next song on our list is Margarita. Which I wasn't sure, is this a Tom Petty song or is this a Bob Dylan song? <laughs> this is a both song. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as far as who wrote it, I, I couldn't really get a feel. It's a little, I guess it feels more like Petty to me than Dylan because there's really, it's very superficial as far as the lyrics go. And Dylan isn't really known for superficial lyrics. Well, I mean, he could when he wanted to. He's 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 tossed off some songs that are just goofs, but... Uh, yeah, I get the feeling this is a little more petty, petty-ish. Um, uh, you know, Dylan was was certainly with I think with some of his songwriting partners, he was much more um, uh, generous. Although that sounds maybe that's not exactly what I'm trying to say. I think he was expansive in terms of his willingness to collaborate very loosely. And like, there's a song Tom Petty has in the mid '80s called "Jam and Me." Oh yeah, uh, which, which was a big hit and. There's a whole thing about um, you could take back Eddie Murphy, take back Joe Piscopo, take back Vanessa Redgrave. Give them all. like there's like three lines in the song that are Dylan's, mm-hmm. and Bob just gave them to Tom Petty. You know, Tom was like, I can't get from you know, I can't get from 
I get, I can get, I, I can do A to B from B to C, but I can't get from C to D. And Bob's Bob, like, here, just, here Bob, you go. Just spit some venom on this for me. Yeah, here you go. Here, Bob. What are you angry about? Here you go, Eddie Murphy. All right, there you go. Bang, done. And that's when Margarita feels. It feels like Bob was like, oh, I'll just write this opening bit for you, and then Tom will just do the rest. It, yeah. it, again, it feels very much like last night to me. They, they're very similar songs, not not sounding wise, but subject matter. Like I think Mike, your observation about that it's like one guy is finishing the story for the other guy. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd ever really thought of that, but I think it's exactly right. And that feels like this with Margarita to me. It's like Margarita really screwed up this one guy so bad that he can't finish the song. So let's get the second guy in. You got to stay yeah. away from that Margarita girl. She's trouble. I've always wondered, is, is Margarita a girl or is it the drink? I think it's a girl. <laughs> either, either one could have screwed him up enough. But it, it does have the very, very meaningful lyrics of Changa Langa Langa Shoebox Soup. We better keep trying till we get it right. Talamala Sheila Galpur Duhoop. So, you know, how could you go wrong with lyrics like that? <laughs> From the man who brought you blown in the wind. <laughs> I honestly think that uh, Margarita is a girl and it was also the drink that he was drinking. So he associates it so closely with the experience uh, that this is, uh, that's what he calls her. My, my, my favorite lyric, one of my favorite lyrics on the album is in this uh, song, and it's, she wrote a long letter on a short piece of paper. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great line. Yeah, I, actually, just, I actually had that line in my notes here. It's, <laughs> it's just one of those things that you hear it, and it, and it, 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 it simultaneously doesn't make a lick of sense and is extraordinarily deep. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and and you can't and, and and only like the collaboration of Bob Dylan and Tom Petty could produce that, you know? Yep. Yep. And yeah, I think that's about as deep as the song gets. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like he's more worried about losing his hat than anything else. <laughs> well, hats are expensive. Yeah. So anyway, we move on to Tweeter and the Monkey Man. Rob, go. Again, this is one of those things where, you know, it sounds so serious. Uh, it sounds deadly serious. And then, of course, anyone who's ever listened to a Bruce Springsteen song knows this is just one giant parody of Bruce Springsteen's lyrics. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just Bob goofing on Bruce Springsteen something fierce. And it's only because you know those guys are buddies that you know it's meant affectionately. And it's not, it's not at all a swipe. It's the only real story song in terms of it being, you know, uh, I mean... It, I'm sorry. I live by the credo in Jersey. Everything's legal as long as you don't get caught. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah. And I love 
sweeter at the Monkey Man. I think it is such a great song. It's so powerful. It's so it's unlike anything else on the album. But yet again, it's it's a giant goof because it's and, all making fun. It's not it's not making fun of Bruce Springsteen. It's it's channeling Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's meant to ridicule him. I no, think it's meant, no, as you said, to parody him. Not at all. Uh, not and, and, and you know, because there's a lot of lyrics in this that are Bruce Springsteen song titles. Yeah. Mansion's Thunder yeah. Road, Mansion on a Hill, Stolen Car, Jersey Girl. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of Springsteen in there. Uh, yeah, not, not to get, not to pull us off topic too much, but in 1992, there was a Bob Dylan tribute concert where they got like 40 big name people to come and cover Dylan songs, and then Dylan came out at the end and, and sang. And I was at that show. I got tickets. It was at Madison Square Garden. And George Harrison was there, and Eric Clapton, and Neil Young, and uh, John Mellencamp, Stevie Wonder, uh, you know, uh, Johnny Cash. It was just a huge lineup of people. And unfortunately, Springsteen couldn't make it. Uh, he was like on tour, but apparently he had said he wished he'd been there because he loved Dylan. And in the, in the lead up to the concert, it wasn't known whether Springsteen was going to make it or not because it was heard that maybe he could make it. And I let myself hope that if he did make it, he would sing Tweeter and the Monkey Man. Oh, that would have been the next. <laughs> that would have been the best thing ever. Unfortunately, it never happened, but that just would have been so cool to hear Bruce Springsteen sing a parody of his own song. I mean, you, you guys are, are, you know, you may have heard it historically, but you'd be too young to remember uh, when Born to Run came out, uh, Springsteen was constantly being compared to, you know, to... Dylan and sure, said, yeah. you know, that he's basically like the successor to Dylan right. as far as his lyrics and, and the type of music that he's putting out, the feel that you get from it. And uh, I, I don't think that Springsteen ever considered that to be anything but a huge compliment. And I actually think Dylan considered it to be a compliment in his own way as well. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, two, two enormously talented guy, guys, particularly with regard to their lyrics. And, and, uh, Again, I like like you said. I don't think there's anything in here that's malicious at all. I think it's all in good fun. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it doesn't have that fun tone that a lot of the other songs have until you think about it that way, and then all of a sudden it becomes one of the most fun songs going. Yep. Uh, ha- having no real background with Bruce Springsteen when I first heard this song, uh, or even now, really, uh, I, I didn't get all the references. What what this song is to me is we were talking earlier in the in this conversation how these songs are in the order they're in on purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, this was released at a time when it was you know albums, so there was a side one and a side two. Where you, I mean, you don't even. <laughs> How do you have a side on an MP3? You know, it's just, it's well, just not going to happen. But... but by the time this came out, there were uh, LPs were, were fading and CDs were pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, they and, still and, had... and in the middle you had tapes. So uh, no, I I I, I I I understand that. I just uh, uh, my my point was is that the way this album is structured to me is that you have a it's a movie mm-hmm. and it's a movie where five or six guys are sitting around telling about lost loves and all that and the end of the first act is not alone anymore because it brings the house down this is the second to last story where somebody's been holding it it's two minutes longer than any other song 
mm-hmm. except except last night, but that's by 18 seconds. So I'm just going to say it's two minutes longer. So this is this is everybody telling their song, and it's like, no, nope, no, nope, I got the tweeter and the monkey man story. I'm saving. I'm I'm going last. <laughs> and then they have like the the last song, but I love this song. It it is so visually evocative. Like I saw it happening in my head. Like and 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 it's it's just like uh, who is the guy that uh, for whatever reason when I hear the undercover cop, I think of the guy that played Richie Valens' older brother in La Bamba. God, what is that guy's name? Mm. Uh, he's on he's on a lot of CBS television these days, but he but he had a very specific look to him, and that's that's who I picture in this. It is. It is my favorite song on the album, but again, that's like saying it's my favorite flavor of ice cream. I mean, right? Ice cream is ice cream. I mean, you know, except for bacon flavored ice cream. I don't care what the bacon mafia says. It's never, <laughs> it's never going to be something I'm going to eat. But you know, this is just the one that I actually sat in my car. I was at a point where I had to get out to. To, to go to the post office. Now, sat in my car for five and a half minutes. Because I wanted <laughs> to hear the whole thing. I didn't want it to be interrupted. Yeah, he's good at that. He can he can definitely feel like you're a guy and he's telling you, he's sitting right in your ear telling you this story. He's mm-hmm. he Many of his story songs have been optioned for movies. They actually make movies out of the songs. They never even, they never actually come to pass. Uh, but the, you know, this, I, I don't, I've never heard that about this particular song, but there's been a number of his songs. Um, uh, there's a song of his again from the blood on the tracks. I'm called Lily Rosemary and the Jack of hearts, which is around nine minutes. And it is one of the most captivating stories you're ever going to hear. And it's just it. And you can't believe that anyone could craft a story that's interesting and make it all friggin' rhyme. Mm-hmm. You know, you're like, my God, that's tough. You know, so, yeah, this is this is just one of his great story songs. And, and the fact that underlying it, it's such a goof. And I love the idea of him retiring to Florida to get himself some stuff. I mean, the idea that the song mentions Florida and New Jersey, it's it's got to be the official Fine Water podcast song. really. <laughs> I think you may have to make that happen. <laughs> one one thing about Dylan is he was one among the pioneers of I couldn't care less about the three minute release time for songs nope. to play him on the radio. Nope, 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 nope. That was never a consideration <laughs> for him. So, uh, so Shag's tweeter, right? I guess so. Yeah, I mean, it, it said the the line about Jersey, everything's legal as long as you don't get caught. I'm like, there's a wisdom in this song. <laughs> And, and just the cadence of that line, like the way it comes out, it's it's simultaneously, like you said, there's wisdom in it, but it gets stuck in your head because of the staccato way it just yep. uh, it just rolls out of his you know out of his mouth. It's just it's so amazing to me. You know, I, I I'm not one of these people that says I hate this genre of music because in every genre of music. There is somebody that just does it and does it so well that it transcends the genre it's in. You know, it's just, you know, there's hip hop songs like that. There's country songs like that. It's why I don't discount anything. Um, I'm sure there is electronica out there that's profound. Uh, I don't feel like investing the time to try to find that song. But still, I'm, I'm willing to accept that it's out there. And this is one of those things where 
somebody is so good at their craft that you almost want to... Uh, here's a good example of that. My wife and I went to see that This Is It movie, the Michael Jackson film. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm not a big Michael Jackson fan. My wife is. She cried for three days after he died. I mean, it's just... I didn't realize what a Michael Jackson fan I was married to until this happened. So she really wanted to go see this film, and I was just like, yeah, okay, I'll do this. She's sat through enough comic book films. I guess I over this. <laughs> and what struck me was not the music, but was watching the man work. Like, watching him put the show together. And all of the thousands of decisions that he made on a split second. I mean, it was like on a dime. He was so good at it that he could do that. And hearing Bob Dylan sing this, that's what I think of. Is <laughs> here's a man that is just honed his craft to the point that he can take a line as long as you don't get caught and it's like the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> I would love to know what lyrics got left out because he leaves out a lot of stuff. I mean, he he he's constantly changing. I feel like this story, this, this, I, I, I'm betting this song was originally about 11 minutes long and he honed it down and <laughs> I'd love to know the other lines because he's always been, he's, he's always been able to do that. I've, I've heard alternate versions of story songs and I'm like, Oh my God, how could he leave that line out? And they're like, well, all right, I understand why he did, but man, that's a great line. So yeah, I feel like there's a, there's a notepad somewhere with some long version of the song. That's probably even got 10 more Springsteen titles in it. Probably. <laughs> we were and when that comes out, <laughs> and when that comes out, you'll be bidding on eBay for it. And, yeah. And I'm really surprised he doesn't or hasn't done this in concert. As far as I know, he never has. Yeah, I don't. I I, I don't know who it's, it's with things that just pop. He's really fully uh, under the thrall of his of his muse, <laughs> his muse just hits him and he doesn't. So I guess he just never felt like, you know, this is worthy of doing or something. Uh, and it's kind of a funny story. I mean, I don't know if either one of you have heard this, but like apparently there was a brief flirtation with doing a tour. Yes, uh, and. Uh, Petty wanted to do it, and I think Lynn wanted to do it because apparently the money they were being offered was just gargantuan, and uh, it was Harrison and Dylan that, that that scotched it because they just said, "I can't." I think it was Harrison who said, "I cannot picture getting up in the morning to do a Wilbury sound check." It just, it just, it, <laughs> it just. I think it just loses the the appeal, and I think that that's. I, I almost wonder if that's why he's never done any of these songs live except for the one. He just feels like. Those are Wilbury songs. They're not my thing. You know, they exist in their own little universe. I have to wonder if that's what it is. I, I mean, I guess no one will ever know because people don't, you know, Bob only does an interview once every couple of years. And when you get them, you're not going to talk to them about the Wilburys. But uh, I would. I, I, I would. But I mean, I'm sure that, uh, you know, it's very controlled what you can ask and what you can't. But I know, I I know love, when they, I when they talked about the tour or the possibility of a tour, uh, a lot of interesting thoughts came up, like whether they'd each get up and kind of do their own set and then they'd play together. Mm -hmm. There was talk of, uh, you know, each of them would do the other person's songs. Mm -hmm. There's just oh, so many so many ideas that, that, like, I would want to be at every different iteration of oh, this possible concert. Oh, my reels of what that could have been like. I, I mean, I totally get it. I totally get that the whole point of this was that it was fun. And if you turn it into a a tour with roadies and all this other stuff and dates and venues. And you got to worry about filling the hall. It, it would lose the charm. And I understand that, but man, that would have been, 
I mean, like I said, when I saw the 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 tribute show, the final song uh, where they all sang Dylan's "My Back Pages" was a jam with Dylan, Harrison, Petty, Clapton, Neil Young, and Roger McGuinn, and that's the closest we're going to get to a Wilburys thing because it was three Wilburys on stage. That's mm. the closest we're ever going to get. So uh, it's a shame that they never even flirted with it. Maybe they could have done a couple of like bars or something you know some weird little gig but uh i guess you know never i I think that's probably if they were gonna do that that's what they would have done they would have done a very small venue unannounced yep yep but i I remember at the time when when there was even discussion about a possible tour and i was saying then i never got to see the beatles this would be as close as i would ever come Mm -hmm. and i've seen paul mccartney live several times but this would be as close as i would come to the beatles ever yep so the, song, the, the album comes to a close with the song that makes me melancholy every time I hear it. And the reason is, uh, shortly after they made this album, within a year, Roy Orbison passed away from a heart attack. And they made a video of End of the Line. And in the video, when they made it, Roy had already passed away. And there's a rocking chair that just rocks back and forth. And that's meant to be Roy. And that just makes me melancholy thinking about it every time. this video as a kid and seeing that and it was my mother was sitting behind me she's like oh yeah he passed away and it was like one of those things where i'm like you know 12 13 years old and you know you don't you know you're not really thinking about death too much hopefully unless you know like you're a kid today when you're listening to dashboard confessional or something but uh, yeah, yeah, there's a uh, there's a reference that's probably about six years out of date. Anyways, uh, <laughs> well, but done. no, it, but just but just seeing that it always made me sad, you know, like you, like it's just like, oh, and it reminds you that you've lost this, you know, that this immense talent. But these guys liked him so much that they're like, you know, we're doing this video, we're doing something for. Work. And uh, it just, it, 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 at, at the same time that it kind of depresses me, it also makes me happy, if that makes any sense. Well, the song is so relentlessly upbeat that mm-hmm. guitar, it's, I mean, the only thing I don't like about this song is that Dylan's not on it. That's the only thing, and it bothers me. Like, why isn't he on it? And he's in the video, and he's singing along in the background, and he's even smiling, which is very rare. Uh, but that's the only thing about this song I don't like is that he's not on it. And I'm like, he needs to be on it. This is this is their closing gambit for the album. He should be singing, but he doesn't. So, OK. But I mean, yeah, the song is just so relentless, so catchy and just so upbeat that you cannot. I, I, I think it, 
I don't know anybody that if you really gave yourself over to it, you wouldn't love this song. It's just so, it's just like a wonderfully three minutes of, you know, warm, warmth and upbeat positivity done on done with high style featuring some amazing voices. So yeah, it's just, it's a great way for the album to go. I, I agree with you on Dylan because this this one kind of gives everybody their moment. Yeah, they and all there's get no reverse. reason to leave yeah. Dylan out of that, except unless maybe he just wasn't available the day they recorded it. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll, again, I'll, it's one of those things. If I ever meet Bob, I'll ask him. <laughs> but uh, but other than that, I mean, he said at least he's in the video and he looks like he's having a good time. And and yeah, that tribute to Roy is very sweet. Where then when they get to that part, they just have the rocking chair. They don't pretend that he's not. You know, they don't try and like have somebody else mimic it or whatever because they knew that would be ridiculous. So they're just having the chair. With with the I think there's a guitar sitting in the chair. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. rocking and it's just it's beautiful. It's a really 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 nice thing. And pe- people will und- people will overestimate Roy Orbison's age when he passed away. He was only 52 years old. Mm. You know, I think people you know think of him as having been around so long that they they think you know he was like 70 years old. But nope. Very very. Sad, oh, to right be there. fair, he he, he kind of looked 70. Oh, he looked so. older than he was, no question. <laughs> but he really was not that old, mm. uh, all things considered. And uh, it's it's a real shame because, as we talked about, when they did their second album, and I like the second album, uh, you know, I'm I'm still a fan, but it lost some of its charm. And I think some of that is due to Roy, and some of it is due, as you mentioned, Rob, to kind of the homogenous nature of the songs on that album. Uh, you know, they didn't really stretch themselves very much with it. Uh, I, I actually enjoyed more than the second album. I enjoyed the singles that they made. Uh, Nobody's Child for mm-hmm. uh, uh, it was for a, uh, a charity album. I, I don't recall children. I think it was called Ro- Romanian Angel Appeal. I think was the name of it. Yes, produced that, by George Harrison's wife. No, Nobody's Child, and when they did the uh, cover of Runaway. Runaway, right? That's a load of fun. That's a, yes. that's, a that's super fun. Yeah. And then you know the second album's good. But it just doesn't reach the level that this one did. There was a lot more post-production tinkering with the second one because there was a lot. There was a lot of Dylan on that one, and I think it was Jeff Lynne sort of realized later on that, like, oh my God, this album. I, I think somebody referred to it as uh, this sounds like a Bob Dylan and Friends album, and they had to go back in and do a lot. They just tinkered with it a lot more, and I just think it has that. You know, you can sort of hear it. Yeah, they they captured something perfect with this first album and they weren't really ever going to be able to do it again because as I said Roy was gone and without Roy it just it, it's the balance is a little different. I love hearing the stories about that in between writing songs they would listen to Roy tell stories about hanging out with Elvis. And I love the idea that people as accomplished as Bob Dylan and George Harrison are like fanboys for Roy yeah. Orbison. Like that's so charming that, that again I use that word again. Uh, get a thesaurus, Rob. But just the idea that that somebody who's done as much as Bob Dylan or one of the friggin' Beatles would still look at another guy and be like, "Tell us more, Roy. Tell us more." <laughs> like I just so that's such a wonderful thing that I yeah I just think without Roy being there, it, it's just never going to be the same thing. And it's, again, it's not their fault. Uh, you know, it's just, just, just the, unfortunately the you know the, the, the nature. You know, as as I get older, I, I really have come to the conclusion that there are certain things that don't need a sequel. We don't need to revisit. You know, you, you don't want to let something go 
But when something's when you stick the landing, you don't try to do the flip again. You know, mm-hmm. you, you got it. You know, you don't want to go back. And, and it's one of those things. I've never heard the, the volume three. Um, because to me, this is going to sound weird. To me, it's I know it's good. I know I'd enjoy it, but it's just like man, it's no. This is this is a thing in and of itself. It's it, it's it's so, it, it's like a a snow globe almost where you know you have this this special thing inside it and you're never going to be able to recreate it and i just i just can't bring now maybe now I'll, after you know you guys talk about it i'll go ah eh, maybe i'll go check it out and, you know pick it up from amazon uh using the two true freaks link plug <laughs> <laughs> but um but no, I just, you know, this this entire album is just, I was mad at my iPhone today because for some reason when I started playing the album, it was on shuffle and I was just like, no, it's in the wrong order. What's going on? And I, I, I pulled over to a gas station to fix it because uh, wow. I don't want to do that while driving because I don't want to die. I mean, people around here can't drive as it is, so I, I don't want to you know, trust in them to be able to give me the five seconds it is to look down at my phone. But no, it's just, I like the way this album is laid out. I like everything about it. Start to finish from opening note to closing note. Everything about this album makes me happy. And it's why I have it. It's, it's why, you know, as an adult, you get to choose, you know, as a kid, this was one of the tapes in my mom's car. So, and I really like to know where that tape is, um, <laughs> just to have it, you know, as a keepsake, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. you know, but, uh, but, you know, when I picked it up a couple of years ago, I was just like, I have to own this. I just have to. And it, and, and, and f- to a certain extent, it's one of those things and I'm not trying to, to bring the, the show down. This is something that makes me think of my mom. Uh, you know, she passed away when I was 17 and there are certain things, one of them being John Denver, which is why I get quiet when people make fun of John Denver because I see what they're saying, but Jesus, she was my mom. He was my mom's favorite. So I want to fight you now, but, um, I don't make fun of John Denver, by the way, I happen to actually <laughs> like John Denver's music. You know, everyone, you, you get people like one-on-one, they'll admit to that, but in a group, it's just like, no. So, but, uh, I think, I think Annie's song is one of the prettiest songs ever. Which is why my mom got so upset when he divorced his wife in the mid '80s because he wrote that song for her. You don't, you, you don't want to break it to her. Mommy wrote that song for her after he cheated on her. But you know, that was years later that I found that out. But uh, no, this was one of her favorite albums. It was like this, Graceland, the Big Chill soundtrack. I mean, they, these are all things that make me think of my mom, mm. and uh, it kind of gives me a connection to her. You know, all these years later. I, I, how could anybody disrespect that, honestly? Mm-hmm. Uh, just just to hit on the John Denver uh, thing one, one, a little further, and uh, Andy Leyland will appreciate that uh, my favorite episode of Magnum uh, P.I., Limbo, features the song Looking for Space, which is another one of my favorites. And to, and to find out who I am. Yep. That's a good one. That's that, that's uh, That was his um, I Want to Go Into the <laughs> Go Into the Into Space song. Whereas, you know, like uh, Calypso was his, I want to go to see. Yeah, I want to go out to see. So a lot going on with John Denver. Yeah, nobody make fun of John Denver. Uh, But just, you know, from from a a realistic point of view, 
Traveling Wilburys Volume Volume 3, I would recommend it as a good album. I think it's solid. There's really nothing wrong with it. But you cannot compare it to Traveling Wilburys Volume 1, which I have often said is the best album I ever bought new when it first came out. And to put that in perspective, I bought Hotel California when it was new when it came out. I bought Rumors when it was new and when it came out. And I bought Born to Run when it was new when it came out. So this is the best album I ever bought new. Hmm. Yeah, I uh, like I said at the top of the show, you know, this was my gateway drug for, for Dylan's music and I'll always be thankful for it. And on a, on a career level, he started, I think, sort of taking his career a little more seriously again. Because the next album he put out after this was an album called Oh Mercy, which is a tremendous album. And uh, Oh Mercy is clearly a lot of thought was put into it. The the albums he did before Wilberry's were very, again, very haphazard, tossed off. It was kind of songs he had lying around. And, oh, I can just slap together nine songs out of some sessions. And there, I got an album. But Oh Mercy was, was a complete artistic thought from beginning to end. And it really kind of kicked off, uh, I don't want to say a second act to his life, because the man's had 19 of them at this point. But <laughs> it, it's, it, it kicked off another renaissance that has continued to this day. And, you know, he's 74, 70, yeah, he's 70, oh my God, he's 74. Um, and he is still putting out albums that are really, really good. And uh, George Harrison said that... Uh, if he said if the Wilburys did nothing else, it got Bob back into songwriting, and he said, and, it, and if it did nothing else, then it was worth it just for that. And uh, you know, Harrison was the biggest Dylan fan in the world, and uh, you know, it was it, obviously working on this album put Bob in a better headspace, and and uh, I'm thankful for it because um, that his music has completely changed my life in so many ways, and. Uh, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't have happened without the Wolverines. Well, I, I think you could say that for pretty much all of them, because right a, pretty much after this album, Harrison came out with Cloud Nine. Great album. Roy Orbison came out with Mystery Girl. Tom Petty came out with Full Moon Fever, and you just mentioned Dylan. Uh, the only one who I think didn't come out with an album was Jeff Lynne, who I think actually produced all of those other albums. So they they were all I think creatively infused after this album. Now there, there there's nothing like working with people you respect to get that going. I mean, and I think it's it says a lot for Dylan as a crea- as a creator really that you know going through a slump, working with a bunch of people he respects, got his creative juices flowing and everybody else was just like, yeah, let's, let's get back into the game and do our best work. And, uh, I, I think, uh, I think what Harrison said was right, but it applies to all of them. If, if this album did nothing else, it gave them all a spark at a certain point in their careers where some people would probably think about retiring. Yeah. Well, I, I think you could say in almost every field, when you take people who are immensely talented and put them together, they inspire each other to do things beyond what they would do alone, whether it's just because they're getting new ideas that are, you know, just kind of sparking that creativity or more likely a little bit of a competitive nature. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, this guy's so great. I got to bring my A game to be as good or better than him. 
And I think that, a little bit of that might have gone on with these guys. And, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and you can't argue with it because, like I said, the proof is in the pudding. They came out with one of the greatest albums of all time as far as I'm concerned, and they all followed it up with tremendous solo efforts. Anyway, any any more fi- any any final thoughts on this before we call it to a close? I don't know. Or, or did we just do that? <laughs> I think we just did that. Yeah, I think we did it. All right. Well, that's it then. And uh, who knows? Maybe we'll be back to do something else one day. But uh, I really enjoyed doing this with you guys. Thanks for thank doing you. it with me. Well, thank you for having me on. And, Mike, thanks for, for getting me involved. Uh, I had a really great time. And, and, you know, as everyone who listens to Firewater or whoever does, I mean, the, the whole aspect of like my my Dylan fandom does not come up on the show. I mean, I mention it every so often when it's relevant or even when it's not. But I mean, I will go. If you people think I talk about Aquaman a lot. Boy, <laughs> get me get me started on Bob Dylan, and I will never shut the hell up. So this, I've actually been very contained here. Uh, <laughs> I hope you all appreciate that. Uh, so, but I really, really look. I really appreciate having the opportunity to even talk about Bob Dylan on a podcast. I don't have that opportunity. If I ever started another podcast, it would be a song by song of Bob Dylan podcast. But that's just, I'm not prepared for such an enormous task. So I will never do it. But uh, I really, really had a, a great time. And uh, thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being here. Yeah. <laughs> If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Visit our website at 2TrueFreaks.com. 2TrueFreaks is always spelled T-W-O. T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S You can email 2 True Freaks directly at 2TrueFreaks at gmail.com 2 True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of... Two True Freaks. And this is your Uncle Don saying good night. Good night, little kids. Good night. We're off? Good. Well, that ought to hold the little bastards.